You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 15th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... So we are making real progress. European allies are spending more. However, some allies still have a way to go. The NATO Secretary General discussing fiscal contributions, but what's really needed to keep the alliance safe? We'll be in Islamabad as the dust clears following the controversial election and we'll look at Greece's same-sex marriage bill. Then the Korean Air and Asiana merger clears additional hurdles on the way to forming a joint company. Plus... I'm Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, and I'll have all the news from the region, including Washington's cold shoulder for Kosovo, North Macedonia's document drama, and the wrong kind of crowded house in Croatia. And finally, we'll reflect on the just-ended World Government Summit in Dubai. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will press ahead with an offensive against Hamas in Rafah, the last refuge for displaced Palestinians in southern Gaza, after allowing civilians to vacate the area. Japan unexpectedly slipped into a recession at the end of last year, losing its title as the world's third biggest economy to Germany. And Russian President Vladimir Putin said in an interview broadcast on Wednesday that he preferred Joe Biden to Donald Trump, but was willing to work with any US president. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, NATO's Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg says that 18 NATO member states plan to meet the alliance's target of spending the equivalent of 2% of gross domestic product on defence in 2024. He was speaking in Brussels yesterday before a meeting of defence officials from NATO's 31 members today to prepare for the NATO summit in July. Well, I'm joined now by Elizabeth Braw, who's Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and a columnist for foreign policy. Elizabeth, welcome back to the programme. We know that former US President Donald Trump said he would encourage Russia to attack NATO members that were not spending enough. How far is Stoltenberg's announcement a direct response to Trump? He is clearly sending a message to Trump, but we, we should remember that that. Nothing Jens Stoltenberg really says uh, can convince Donald Trump that NATO's European members are doing enough. Uh, it's it's one of his sort of tenets of uh, Trump's uh, worldview that uh, European countries don't do enough for their own security. And it's also, frankly, a really useful thing to keep repeating on the campaign trail. So he will keep doing it almost regardless of of how much European countries spend on defense. And he also has this incorrect understanding of how NATO works. He seems to think that, that European countries are not paying NATO enough 
whereas in reality, it, the, the fees or contributions that member states pay to NATO are very small and almost significant, insignificant compared to uh, the expenditure uh, they commit to within their own defense budgets. So uh, he, he doesn't understand how NATO works, how it's financed and, and what the 2% is about. But all of that doesn't matter because he is convinced that European countries are not doing enough. And uh, he clearly thinks it's something uh, with which he can he can score points with uh, with the electorates. So even if spending increases, how can NATO be protected against a potential Trump presidency? Well, Georgina, this is the problem. So European countries are European governments are extremely concerned at the moment and uh, and uh, have also been increasing their defence spending for a number of years now and it didn't just start when uh, when Trump was elected and especially not when he made his most recent comments but the reality of defence spending is that governments announce their intention to uh, increase it and then they allocate the money and then it start, that starts the process of deciding where you're going to put the money, what, what sort of weaponry you're going to buy, uh, from whom, and then you join the queue of, of governments waiting to, to buy weaponry from that manufacturer. It's a very long process. So even if a country is, if every NATO member state were to commit to 2% defence spending today, it would be years before this resulted in uh, increased security uh, for the these countries, meaning more weaponry and and well, more we- more weaponry and and equipment, uh, so there is a long time lag, and it, so it's it's almost I think. Um, useless or even unhelpful to keep focusing on the 2% because that's just a commitment. It doesn't translate into uh, increased security until many years after you've made that commitment. And we should remember that in in a few years' time, uh, our continent or or the continent, Europe, uh, may look completely different. Mm. I mean, Stoltenberg said that ministers will address the resourcing of NATO's new defence plans. Do we know what those defence plans are? We don't really, and I think this is uh, also something that that defence ministers will find find it useful to discuss at, at this uh, meeting that they are gathering for. But I think it's also the reality that all of these all of these plans uh, are evolving and may change quite rapidly uh, within uh, not just the next few weeks but uh, the next few months what if trump is elected what what how will that affect plans within nato and it's uh, that that uh, eventuality is, is almost too dramatic to consider so, I mean, as you say, with, with conflicts moving so quickly uh, and, of course, this gathering coming in advance of the NATO summit in July, how much do you believe then the world order will change between now and then? Will plans made now still be relevant? They will be relevant to some extent, but the the, the situation we have now is so fluid compared to what we had uh, in, in the early decades of NATO and indeed uh, recent, uh, more recent years of NATO when it was really a static situation and NATO knew what to prepare for and it prepared and it planned and it exercised and that was it. And then in the, in the early 2000s, after the end of the Cold War, it was a, a similarly uh, manageable situation where NATO was really didn't have to worry 
that much about the situation within within Europe or the threats within Europe, and instead it, it focused on on expeditionary warfare and and helped solve the. Uh, address the conflicts in the Balkans and, and indeed in Afghanistan. And now it is the case again that that uh, the situation in Europe is the overriding concern for NATO, but it's also so incredibly uh, unpredictable and unstable, not just because of, of what uh, Vladimir Putin says or does, or indeed what China says or does, but also because of what uh, NATO's most important member state uh, may uh, decide to do should Donald Trump be re- be really uh, re-elected. Now, some of those defence plans are being tested right now through the exercise Steadfast Defender. I believe it's the the largest NATO exercise in decades. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, so it's essentially a return to the reforger exercise that NATO used to conduct during the Cold War, which was an exercise to bring soldiers all over the alliance to where they needed to be in case of a Warsaw attack, and that place would most likely have been West Germany, which is where the, the exercise took place. We should we should remember that that back then uh, NATO's uh, NATO's border with with the the, the, the Warsaw Pact was obviously uh, in the middle of Germany, so that's where uh, the focus of Reforger was. Now, with Steadfast Defender, it's it's essentially the same sort of exercise. It's a logistics exercise, getting soldiers and their equipment to where they need to be, and and that may sound like a, a modest undertaking. It's extremely complex. They have to come from from all different directions with their equipment, and then uh, arrive in the place where they are expected to to defend NATO, and it's extraordinarily complex, and it's it, it also involves a lot of soldiers, which is why it is such a large exercise, and it, it, it the exercise is. Uh, desperately needed because if you don't get the logistics of getting the soldiers to where they need to be on a large scale, then you're not going to be fighting a war very successfully. Presumably Finland becomes the new front line. One of the front lines, so, and, and, and a significant one. So yes, NATO will have to practice and, and exercise that as well. Uh, Finland uh, is used to protecting its own borders, but NATO has, hasn't yet uh, exercised getting soldiers, uh, large numbers of soldiers to the Finnish border. So that is, it's, it's one of the tasks. And I think uh, we'll, we'll see uh, member states practice that as part of, of Steadfast Defender as well. But it, it is a long stretch of land that NATO now has to defend from Russian aggression. And that's much more complicated than during the Cold War, where it really was virtually only the intra-German border. Uh, obviously, uh, Norway was a member state already during the Cold War, but was never really uh, a, a likely scene of a significant Soviet aggression. So the meetings that going on today and, and, and yesterday, this is to prepare for the summit coming up in July. When the group of seven nations signed a joint agreement at the NATO summit in Vilnius in July last year, they committed to establishing long-term security commitments and arrangements with Ukraine that would be negotiated bilaterally. Now, more than 30 countries have signed that declaration since July last year. But are we seeing those bilateral agreements bearing fruit? 
Yeah, I think th this is a process that is taking place at the diplomatic level, meaning at the the, uh, the, the uh, level of, of officials rather than ministers. So the ministers made the commitment and now it's being executed. So it, and it, it is a long process. I think that the fact that it hasn't been in the news doesn't mean that, that uh, it's not happening. It is happening and uh, it's, it's just a very painstaking process. Anytime you have any sort of diplomatic agreement, the execution is is uh, going to be time consuming. It's going to have a lot of details that need to be addressed. But but uh, I haven't heard any indication of of uh, that not happening or, or Western commitment to uh, to to that process uh, uh, vanishing or, or or declining. But it is it is a long process. Uh, and finally, Elizabeth, what about Ukraine's membership of NATO? Will that be under discussion? I don't think it will be under uh, discussion to the point where uh, anybody will uh, make any significant uh, pronouncements. It is uh, a source of massive division within NATO. Some member states feel very strongly that Ukraine should be uh, should become a member of NATO, and 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 uh, they are willing to push very hard for it. Uh, primarily, the Baltic states uh, also other countries in the region, whereas some countries, including the United States, feel that it shouldn't happen uh, at this moment. So it, there is so much uh, disagreement within NATO on, on this. I think if, if, if they, uh, the ministers manage to get through this meeting without it blowing up, they will have done well. It's, 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 it's a hard issue to, uh, to reconcile if some countries feel very strongly uh, about Ukraine becoming a member and, and others feel very strongly that it, it should not become a member at, at this point. It, you, you can't have it both ways. So so uh, it is a, a testimony to the power or the, to the skills of uh, NATO diplomats that they managed to to present uh, that the alliance manages to present the united front uh, on this issue as well. Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist. It is 12.14 in Islamabad and 7.14 here in London. Uh, now to Pakistan, where following last week's election, which was unexpectedly won by independent candidates backed by jailed Imran Khan's party, the PTI, his rivals, Nawaz Sharif and Bilawal Bhutto Zadari, have reached a deal to form a government. I'm joined now by Lynn O'Donnell, who's columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. She's in Islamabad. Lynn, many thanks for coming back on to update us on the situation. If the independents and the PTI got the most seats, how does this work? Oh, hi, Georgina. Um, it's not that the PTI got the most seats. They, it's like any coalition. Um, I, I've got this number and I need that number. Can we do a deal? So the the opposition parties um, of Nawaz Sharif and Bilawal Bhutto, um, they put their votes together and then they pulled in another four parties so that they could then uh, boost the, the numbers, form a coalition. And then that also gives them access to what are called reserve seats for 
women and uh, minorities, like ethnic minorities, non-Muslim parties, and put them all together, and that gives them the biggest number. Um, PTI is not yet reconstituted as a party, so the independents are independents. And until the PTI is constitutionally allowed to um, uh, reform and call itself a party, it can't count those numbers on a party basis. What it tried to do was form a coalition with a with a teeny party that had one seat, thinking that would give it uh, access to one third of those 70 reserve seats I just mentioned. And in that way, it could start boosting its numbers up and hope that the 65 seats it initially said had been robbed uh, would be recounted and given to them. They reconstitute a party and then they can take government. But it didn't happen. They had three days to pull it together and they couldn't. And they've been basically gazumped by the uh, by the establishment parties. It's really back to business, you know. <laughs> the um, the military the military parties have have pulled it together. So, who will be prime minister? It looks like the uh, brother of Nawaz Sharif, whose na- Sharif, whose name is Shebaz, will take the prime ministership. Um, uh, it, there's a lot of uh, stuff in the papers today about whether or not this was the plan all along. What we had thought would happen before the election on February the 8th was that Nawaz Sharif, who's already been Prime Minister three times, would be re-anointed as the military's preferred candidate. Um, I think that there has been something of a humiliation here, and this might be a, a face-saving uh, measure. Uh, his party, the um, the uh, PMLN, uh, still gets to retain power, but Nawaz now can look as if he was always going to be the backroom um, string puller and uh, save face. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, different views of, of whether that uh, is what they had planned in the first place. Um, but as it turns out, it doesn't really matter. Um, there's a Nawaz in, in the seat. Mm. And the president and, and Nawaz is... Nawaz Sharif, yeah, a Sharif in the seat. My apologies. The, yeah. the president's also a familiar name. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Mr. Zadari, um, former husband of Benazir Bhutto, who was assassinated um, uh, some years ago, and father of uh, Bilawal uh, Zadari Bhutto, who uh, is also um, the president, the leader of, of the Pakistan People's Party. So it's all the dynasties getting the band back together. Why is Pakistan so wedded to dynasties? Um, it's the way the military retains power. Um, these people are, politics is their business. Um, the Bhutos have been in politics um, and in power, in and out, for generations, uh, and so have the Sharifs. Um, Nawaz Sharif's daughter, Mariam, is taking the position of uh, Chief Minister of Punjab province, which is the biggest and most powerful politically and economically province in, in Pakistan. She becomes Chief Minister, which is basically putting her on the track to be um, a future prime minister. Um, they they work in tandem with the military, which really, if we're being honest, pulls all the levers here. And uh, this is how the status quo is maintained. Um, like anywhere, people love a celebrity. The politicians here have celebrity status. And when you have a population that is also kept uneducated 
and poor, which the vast majority of of people in Pakistan, unfortunately, are, then uh, celebrity is what resonates and it's worked. Can you tell us about this MP who's given up his seat? Oh yes, there's a, there's a few pockets of um, of integrity in in politics here. Um, this is a very interesting story that um, I saw on the on the BBC site. Um, he has. Uh, conceded, uh, he's in a seat in Peshawar, um, and he has conceded that he only won because the vote was rigged in his favour, and he has decided that he will give up his seat to the uh, independent candidate who was backed by uh, the... um, uh, the PTI, uh, Imran Khan's PTI. It's a very interesting story and it sheds light on um, the integrity that you can expect to find in some remote and rare corners of uh, of politics in Pakistan. But also it sheds light on just how uh, filthy the vote has been. I've been talking to a guy today who's going to the High Court to have uh, – a recount in his vote in Islamabad. Um, his name is um, Amir Mughal. He's the president of the PTI here in Islamabad. And he says that 100,000 votes in his favour were stolen from him. And so he's seeking uh, a recount and an overturn. And that's happening um, across the country. And what's the future of Khan and his party? Well, there were rumours the other day, as you can imagine, the rumour mill has been running over time, that um, Imran Khan would be permitted to uh, leave uh, prison, uh, go home under house arrest and be able to, from his own house, talk to uh, the other candidates and the military about forming a coalition. Uh, but I think that that's now not going to happen. The coalition has been formed. There has been an effort to bring some uh, calm uh, to the situation. Uh, uh, Pakistan needs uh, to talk to the IMF about uh, more loans to keep the wolf from the door. Um, And so I think that with the coalition formed, um, Imran has been gazumped. He's said that he wouldn't um, form coalitions with the establishment parties. So with uh, as long as he can keep the independents on side and reconstitute the PTI as a viable uh, political party, um, he can uh, cause a lot of trouble and a lot of um, uh, instability within the parliament. But um, that's about it for the moment. We have to wait and see. Uh, you mentioned the IMF, and we know that the new Prime Minister, Shabazz Sharif, has been instrumental previously in making a deal uh, with the International Monetary Fund. Do you think that the country is now in a position to pull itself out of its economic difficulties? Well, it's in a position to, once the government is sworn in, to talk to the IMF about getting more cash loans uh, to see it through. But whether or not uh, the uh, parties that have been in power on and off for um, however long it is can do what they haven't been able to do to date and 
solve the economic problems that the country is facing is very doubtful. And there's a lot of talk here about how long it will be before the country goes to the polls. I've heard anything between six months and 18 months. So we're not really talking about political stability um, as as uh, you and I know it. We're talking about a holding pattern so that the, um, the IMF uh, can be appeased uh, it needs to talk to a government. Uh, once the government is formed, the IMF will have somebody to talk to. It gets some more money in. There's only about a, a, a month's worth of cash in the bank at the moment um, and keep it ticking over in the same precarious way. It's been ticking over for uh, years now um, before they have another election. And um, I think that that's what's going to happen. It's stability for the sake of using the word but it's not really stability in terms of um, being able to really solve the problems that a government should be able to solve. Uh, the economy is in crisis. Inflation is at 40%. Unemployment is um, very, very high. People don't have anything to look forward to. The mandate of the, the ballot box is not being um, exercised at the uh, parliamentary level. Um, there is, for all intents and purposes, incredible instability here. And uh, it just is a matter of when the next election will be held. Lynn, thank you very much indeed. That's Lynn O'Donnell in Islamabad. Now, still to come on the programme, we'll get the latest news from the Balkans and we'll look at the impending merger of Korean Air and Asiana Airlines. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 7.25 here in London. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin. And joining me in the studio is political reporter Vincent McAvinney. Good morning to you, Vinny. Good morning. Uh, let's start in Kansas City and this shooting there. We know that one person is definitely confirmed dead. At least eight children amongst 22 people injured. Tell us more. This is really horrific and a really sad coda to what was actually an incredible Super Bowl. I stayed up overnight on Sunday to cover it. They think it's now the second most watched broadcast ever. Somewhere between 120 to 130 million people watched it. It was really spectacular, only only beaten by the moon landing. Uh, and for Kansas City, which is, you know, a smaller US city, uh, they had the honour of being the first uh, team in 20 years to have won back-to-back Super Bowls. And it was going to be a huge celebration, a unifying moment for, uh, you know, an 
overlook city, perhaps. Uh, but this tragic event happened, and, and this is always my nightmare as a reporter. I have had it happen to me. I've had a terrorist attack occur whilst I've been broadcasting. There's a video that's going around showing a local TV reporter. Uh, you know, the families are all around him. People are enjoying themselves, and all of a sudden, you just hear the gunshot ringing out. And what often happens in those moments in real life is that. Everyone pauses because they're not quite sure what's going on, and then suddenly something goes off, and a panic sort of sets in, and everyone is running, and it's really horrible to watch. And the fact that you know it's unclear at the moment the cause uh, three people apparently being sort of uh, detained by the police, and I don't think it helps that in the build-up to this Super Bowl there was so much absolute nonsense that social media was allowing to be pumped out about. You know Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift being a government psyop to help re-elect Joe Biden, and the problem is that as much as we you know laugh and scoff and think how how can you possibly believe this, there are sadly people out there in America still who will you know like PizzaGate, like QAnon, like this now they will full sail believe it, and you know they might be mentally unwell、uh, and they might take action on it. Hopefully, you know it, it's not the case that someone was so inspired by this mad rhetoric, but it is unclear at the moment. What the cause was,、um, and for a city, you know, trying to to celebrate like this,、uh, you know, there's another report out there that apparently it was an argument that potentially got out of hand,、uh, but it's just as another lesson for America in having guns around makes you all less safe, really. Absolutely.、Uh, let's look at this really alarming story coming out of Russia. The Times says that the country plans to put a nuclear missile into space. Yeah, this is a really interesting story,、uh, and it comes、uh, at a time. Of Obviously, heightened geopolitical tension,、uh, and we've had threats from Russia in recent years that they were going to, you know, potentially move a small nuclear weapon over the border into Ukraine and put that on the battlefield. Uh, but this uh, comes uh, after a, a leading member of Congress、uh, described it as a serious national security threat.、Uh, an unusual move. Mike Turner, the Republican chairman of the House Representatives Intelligence Committee, asked the White House to declassify details、uh, of what he said was、uh, this threat. Uh, and so the White House seems to have gone along with this. They're urging caution on this, saying that people shouldn't be too alarmed. They don't think. Russia potentially has the capacity to do this, but what apparently Russia is wanting to do、uh, is get a nuclear missile into orbit, not then to sort of strike down on Earth, sort of you know 1980 style Star Wars, that kind of、uh, fear that was around back then, but in order for Russia to then attack satellites in space. Now, it doesn't actually take much to、uh, attack a satellite in space. It seems pretty. Uh, unnecessary to take a nuclear weapon because we know from stories that we've done here on Monocle the amount of space junk that there is. You know, just a sort of the, the speed that the small particles, maybe the size of your laptop, are moving. Say that it's come off a, a previous shuttle launch or something like that, a, a piece of space debris moving so fast. If it manages to hit a, a satellite, it sort of punch straight through it and take it out anyway. So it's quite an extreme measure to think. Let's take a nuclear weapon up there and detonate it to take out、uh, satellites,、um, and particularly as well, of course, when you know you've got humans living in orbit as well in the International Space Station. Something Russia for a very long time was a part of, a key part of.、Um, So the U.S. lawmakers are trying to sort of urge a bit of caution on this, but it would be, I think, just a very 
ominous signal that Russia, you know, it signed the Outer Space Treaty in 1967, banning all nuclear weapons. Uh, We know that things like the START Treaty, the Nuclear Weapons Treaty, uh, they're sort of reneging on now. They are sort of trying to arm up. And it would just be another sign that Vladimir Putin is dragging Russia back into the USSR if they try to actually get a weapon like this into space. Mm. Now, the most feel-good and lovely competition is being dragged into the most ugly conflicts of today. Tell us about this row over Eurovision. Yes, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, a group uh, have uh, signed, a group of very famous faces, Gene Simmons, Helen Mirren, Boy George amongst them, uh, 400 celebrities in total, uh, Deborah Messing as well, Liv Schreiber, Selma Blair. They have uh, signed a, a letter, an uh, open letter, supporting Israel's inclusion in Eurovision this year uh, amid calls for a boycott due to the Israel-Gaza war. Uh, and the letter says... Uh, from the Creative Community for Peace. We believe that unifying events such as singing competitions are crucial to help bridge our cultural divides and unite people of all backgrounds through their shared love of music. Now, Israel, of course, has been in the competition for decades. It has sometimes uh, attracted criticism, but I think we're seeing a sort of overwhelming amount, and particularly from uh, certain countries, uh, Ireland in particular, and now uh, Finland, Iceland and Sweden have had more than 2,000 musicians, uh, and Sweden is of course the host country this year, sign a a separate letter calling for Israel to be banned from the competition uh, and saying if Israel is not excluded from it in Malmo uh, that the uh, state broadcaster in Finland, for instance, Yule should uh, pull out uh, and boycott sending an entry. And this is something that I think we're going to see a lot more of in the coming weeks, this heavy criticism. Now, the position that it's in is that Eurovision has banned countries in the past from taking part, so it's not unprecedented. Uh, Russia currently, of course, banned for its illegal invasion of Ukraine. But there is, I think, in all of this, and I noticed this um, a couple of weeks ago when uh, an alumni from my old school in Luxembourg is going to be representing Luxembourg, re-entering the competition after many decades away. Um, Her name is uh, Tali. She uh, is... um, uh, part Israeli uh, and has spoken in in interviews about the wave of anti-Semitism that she has since received uh, in part because I think the songwriters of her song are from Israel as well uh, and she spent time there growing up as well as uh, a lot of time in Luxembourg and attending school in Luxembourg uh, and I noticed quite quickly after she was selected that there was a lot of anti-Semitic abuse coming her way uh, and I think this is something that uh, you know it go, another example a report out today showing huge spike in anti-Semitic crimes here in the UK as well it just shows that anti-Semitism is a light sleeper. Um, mm. I wonder if our next story is related to that in any way anybody familiar with London nightlife certainly for the last 30 years or so will know that a traditional place to end up in the early hours of the morning is a hundred 55 Brick Lane uh, at uh, the yellow one that is the Bagel Bakery and uh, Mm. for years it's been a staple of sort of late night uh, eating fantastic bagels Mm -hmm. traditional to go there for their smoked salmon and cream cheese or their salt beef they've shuttered their doors What's I think everyone on? who's had a big night out in London has ended up in this bagel shop at some <laughs> point. And I was remembering, you know, back into my early 20s uh, going here. It's really interesting and it partly tells sort of the story of London as well. Uh, it's on Brick Lane, which of course is now famous for its curry houses. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it is sort of old East End London. 
But, uh, you know, originally before there was a lot of sort of Bangladeshi and, and um, sort of Muslim migrants on the street, uh, it was a Jewish street uh, because you had a lot of textile factories nearby and things as well. Uh, and it's a piece of history. It was founded in 1855 uh, by uh, uh, by an Israeli family, uh, or sorry, a, a Jewish family then. It was taken over in the 80s by two Israeli brothers, we understand. Uh, and it's, as you say, the yellow one. It's got this really classic kind of 1970s-ish sort of frontage to the store. It does amazing bagel. Um, but something seems to be going awry because there was a notice posted uh, over the weekend on the doors, which are now locked, uh, that there had been a repossession by uh, by the landlord. Uh, now, the, the shop itself is saying that it is, uh, you know, it's a, it says it's Britain's first and best bagel shop. Uh, it's saying it will reopen. And a message on the Instagram says it's closed for a short period to conduct essential electrical work and promises will be back before you know it. It is unclear. When I first read the story, I did wonder perhaps um, if there was some kind of sort of anti-Semitism involved in it. That's not clear at the moment, um, but I think we'll see. But it would be a real sadness. I think there's lots of shops in London that we lost in the pandemic, the kind of shops that you probably wouldn't open these days, that wouldn't come back. There was a shop I loved in Greenwich that just sold old maps. It, you know, it's part of the maritime history, uh, and it had been going for, for decades. And, you know, there's uh, one that, there's one near um, Covent Garden that just sells umbrellas, and it's got this spectacular frontage. And you think no one would ever open these these days. Mm. Uh, and, you know, this sort of classic old-style bagel store um, on Brick Lane is a real, you know, cultural icon. And it would be very sad to lose another piece of, of London's heritage. So many empty shop fronts in this city right now. Hopefully, whatever is going on with the landlord can be resolved. It would be curious as well uh, if, um, you know, we have this insane system in the UK of uh, freehold, if perhaps something's gone wrong with the freehold system which is essentially a, a sort of legal feudal system if you ask me about it, that this government had promised to get rid of, um, but we'll see, it's one to keep an eye on. Absolutely Vincent, thank you very much indeed, that's Vincent McAvinney there. Now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Israel will press ahead with an offensive against Hamas in Rafah, the last refuge for displaced Palestinians in southern Gaza, after allowing civilians to vacate the area, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Wednesday. Today, the leaders of Canada, Australia and New Zealand issued a statement calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Japan unexpectedly slipped into a recession at the end of last year, losing its title as the world's third biggest economy to Germany and raising doubts about when the central bank would begin to exit its decade-long ultra-loose monetary policy. Some analysts are warning of another contraction in the current quarter as weak demand in China, sluggish consumption and production halts at a unit of Toyota Motor Corporation all point to a challenging path to an economic recovery and policymaking. And Russian President Vladimir Putin said in an interview broadcast on Wednesday that he preferred Joe Biden to Donald Trump, but was willing to work with any US president. At a time of high political uncertainty in the US and with relations between the two countries at their lowest point for more than 60 years, his comments were more likely to be perceived as mischief-making than taken at face value. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
It was that annual celebration of love, Valentine's Day, yesterday, and a fitting time for the Greek Parliament to begin debating what type of love can be officially recognised. A debate continuing today began on a landmark bill to legalise same-sex marriage in the Orthodox Christian country. Well, let's get the latest now with Monocle's newsletter editor, that is Manos Papavasilio. Manos, welcome to the studio. Uh, This is a debate that's been raging in Greece for some time. Can you give us the background on the the very slow move towards marriage equality? Yes, of course. Hi, Georgina. Um, So... Just to, to mention, growing up in Greece, I was never, I could never believe that this could ever happen. What we're seeing today, this um, same-sex bill being debated and voted on later today. Um, as you know, uh, Greece is a, a very Christian Orthodox country. It has been uh, in, under the influence of the church for many, many years. Um, and to be honest, uh, Still, the society, even though we're debating this thing, uh, the society is pretty much, you know, backwards, more traditional, if you if you put it this way. But um, with Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who is uh, the current prime minister, this is something that he has always wanted to do. He has always expressed his desire to do. But he was always saying that, you know, society is not quite ready for this. Now, what changed is that um, since his election last year, he he got this uh, landslide election and got so much power. Um, and now he is more confident into doing things. He expressed his desire as, a, as an idea of presenting same-sex marriages um, back I- last year um, after he won the elections. But no one really took it seriously. No one really believed this was mm-hmm. going to happen. And he didn't actually put any timeline to it. It was only until... You know, Stefanos Kasalakis, who uh, replaced uh, Tsipras at the opposition party, Syriza, and he became the first openly gay uh, leader of a party, that he brought the whole debate um, on, in focus. And in that essence, I think that spurred Mitsotakis to, to bring forward his plans and appear as though, you know, he is the person who does what he says. Um, he brought it forward in a televised interview in January, and since then the country has been an- engulfed in a huge debate about it. Mm. And I mean, as we know, civic partnerships were actually legalised back in 2015. This would be having the sort of proper church wedding. So how has the, the, the religious opinion changed, or perhaps it hasn't? The religious opinion has not changed at all. Uh, the church is completely against it. Um, in fact, one of the church leaders this week, Hieronymus, um, who is known for being quite extreme, he, he mentioned that uh, whichever MP votes for today should be doing so with their names. So we all know what happens. Uh, the church has said that they're going to protest against it. But this proves, you know, Mitsotakis's um, plan to, to, to reform the party that used to be conservative, but turns it into a more liberal direction. Mm. And if the bill goes through later today, Greece would become the first Orthodox Christian country in which same-sex marriage is legal. How significant would that be and would it be likely to affect the stance of other Orthodox countries? Could this be a major religious turning point? It, it could it could be a major de- religious turning point. I mean, the society, as I said, in Greece is, is still quite conservative. 
Um, but however, I, it has to be said that this could only be the first step for future generations. So growing up um, as a child, seeing that other people, your friends at school have different parents than yours, you know, slowly, slowly building that society towards acceptance. This is the only way to do it. Um, because still, uh, th- there's there's a lot, there's a lot of um, going against this plan. Um, and even Mitsotakis within his own party, a lot of uh, MPs um, have openly opposed the bill. But um, according to the numbers so far, we, and, and barring any surprises, we think this is going to pass later today. Excellent. Manos, thank you very much indeed. That's Manos Papa Vasalio. And you're with Monaco Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 16.42 in Seoul, 8.42 in Zurich. Korean Air, South Korea's biggest carrier, has won EU antitrust approval to buy the indebted Asiana Airways. Greg Waldron is Asia Managing Editor at Flight Global, based in Singapore, and he joins me to unpack this. Greg, this is by no means a done deal. The companies have had to make agreements about selling Asiana's cargo unit and divesting some routes. Can you give us the details? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, the Korean Air saga, Korean Air Asia acquisition originated at the very end of the coronavirus pandemic. And at the time, um, they thought that this would take a year or two to wrap up, but it's actually dragged on for four years. And I think it's been a much tougher battle than, you know, they'd expected. Um, so basically, you know, they've they've completed, they've got EU um, approval uh, a few days ago for this. And that's actually crucially important. The only other major jurisdiction that um, has yet to approve the merger is the USA. And that's not an easy task by any means. But it's been going on for years and it's an important step closer. Um, but big caveat with the European Union um, is it's contingent upon, you know, the sale of Asiana's cargo business to kind of limit or to, or allow more competition in that space. Mm. What's the deal worth and how much control does it give Korean Air? Oh, it's worth uh, billions potentially. And I think long term, it's going to be, a, you know, a massive uh, benefit for, you know, Korean. It'll really help them, you know, consolidate their position at home. And this is why, you know, regulators are so concerned about it because, or have expressed some concerns about it because it gives them a significant amount of power, which is why regulators have tried to whittle it away. Mm. But ultimately, I think it's going to make for a more efficient Korean airline sector. Um, Asiana really suffered years of losses and, you know, has really struggled. And it was really on death's door at the outset of the pandemic. So something had to be done. And also, too, I think the Korean government is very strongly behind the deal going forward as well. So the airline sector has seen a wave of consolidation in recent months. What's driving that? Yeah, well, certainly. Well, the thing about aviation is it's all about scale. You know, you have this, this, the biggest airline you can have possible. You really try to generate those economies of scale. You try to keep costs low. And also, too, if you have that scale, it helps you, you know, fend off competition as well, because you can kind of discount the tickets when newcomers come in and so forth. So, you know, it's really about just this effort to get scale and be competitive. But of course, you know, in some situations, such as in the U.S., I mean, there's critics that say it's gone a bit too far consolidation. You have three basically major airline groups 
And that's not so great for, you know, ticket prices, basically, and consumers. So I think, you know, we had that wave of consolidation over the last you know, decade and a half. But now I think, you know, the, um, the trend is, you know, reversing as exemplified by the JetBlue spirit getting turned down. That deal got turned down about a few weeks ago. Greg, thank you very much indeed. That was Greg Waldron speaking to us from Singapore. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Well, it's time now for a Balkans Roundup with Monocle correspondent Guy Delaunay, who joins us now from the region. Uh, Good morning to you, Guy. Good morning, Georgina, and good morning, everyone. Let's start in Kosovo. What's going on? Well, the United States isn't very happy with Kosovo, I think it's safe to say. And this is reasonably big news, because if the United States is unhappy with Kosovo, then pretty much all of Kosovo's partners are going to be unhappy. Um, What's happened in this instance is the Assistant Secretary of State, James O'Brien, says that the United States may not treat Kosovo as a partner if, uh, if that feeling and those actions are not reciprocated. And this has all got to do with Kosovo's rather precipitate ban on the use of the Serbian dinar uh, as a currency in Kosovo. That's something which the United States and Kosovo's other international partners, including the European Union and the United Kingdom, have all asked Kosovo to row back from because it'll have a real impact on the ability of Kosovo Serbs to live their lives. Um, Kosovo has done no such thing. It's ploughed ahead with this ban. And as a result, its international partners are extremely displeased. Right. Let's move on to North Macedonia, where there's a bit of a document drama. There is indeed a document drama and a sticker drama as well, Georgina, because uh, the deadline passed on Monday at midnight, so that's Monday into Tuesday midnight, um, for people to swap any documents which had Republic of Macedonia written on them uh, for new documents with the country's current name, Republic of North Macedonia. And, of course, <laughs> you know what deadlines are like. Um, you know, do things happen on time? Do things happen on time in North Macedonia? Absolutely, they don't. The upshot is about 650,000 people have still got Republic of Macedonia um, passports, not Republic of North Macedonia passports. Um, there's a lot of disgruntlement about this. People have also not got their driver's licenses or national IDs changed in time. And when I mentioned the stickers, these are the stickers which go on your number plate. So it no longer says MK in that little blue uh, oblong on your number plate, but it says NMK. And people have been so uh, desperate to get hold of these. They've been in such short supply that some enterprising folk, of course, have started producing them um, for a matter of uh, a mere euro cents uh, and uh, making a little bit, a a small packet from distributing uh, non-officially sanctioned NMK stickers for your number plates. Mm. Um, Does the government care, Georgina? Uh, Well, we've got a caretaker prime minister at the moment, Talat Shaferi, because we're preparing for elections. And he just quipped, well, all 650,000 people don't need to leave the country today. (laughs) Talking about a small packet, there's a huge packet being made in Croatia by unscrupulous landlords who seem to be exploiting migrants. That's right. And this is something, you know, I'm, I'm reading about this every day when I'm looking at the, the, the news outlets in Croatia. There's a fresh story 
about people who have come to uh, Croatia, often from quite far away, places like Nepal, uh, Bangladesh, Philippines, um, to fill you know, all, all sorts of jobs which are not being filled by Croatian people because there's a labor shortage in Croatia, but they're not being treated very well in many instances. And the one that I read just, uh, just, just in the past 24 hours, which is particularly egregious, uh, concerned a ha- an apartment in the center of Zagreb in which 32 people, 32 workers, are being housed in bunk beds, many bunk beds, to a room, each of those 32 people paying €250 a month uh, for the privilege, to uh, the landlord who was subletting this apartment from the state, would you believe, for under €800 a month. And uh, the news outlet I read was said, well, that's €8,000 for the landlord. Uh, It's a profit of about €7,200 a month. And these people, uh, guest workers who are doing essential work, uh, meanwhile, in very poor conditions indeed. Yes. Uh, Let's have a look now into the final report into December's elections in Serbia. That's just been published. Uh, And it's, uh, well, it says it's not free and fair. Yeah, it's not a flattering report. And this has been produced by Sarta, which is the independent election monitor, which is based in Belgrade. And they've said the process was not free or fair at both the municipal and national levels. And I'll just give you a quick quote from their summary, Georgina. Uh, They said, from the moment when the elections were officially called, institutions increasingly disregarded legal constraints leading to local election results in Belgrade, not reflecting the freely expressed will of the citizens and significantly compromising the legitimacy of the parliamentary election. And this, you know, reflects the allegations that have been flying around Georgina since polling day about things like vote busing, vote rigging, um, media domination by the governing progressive party. Those have all been pointed out by Sarta before. They've been pointed out by international observers as well. And now this new report by Sarta pulls it all together and gives all of the the documentary evidence that you'd expect. And so what happens? Is there a rerun? Uh, There won't be a rerun, but uh, we've just had a call in the European Parliament last week, a resolution was passed there, calling for an independent international investigation into the outcome of the election. Now, if the European Parliament had teeth, we might see this, but uh, it's a bit gummy, isn't it, the Mm. European Parliament? So uh, I don't think we're going to see that. I think what will happen is that uh, Serbia will plough on as usual. Uh, The government will probably give assurances to its uh, more important interlocutors about its commitment to uh, free and fair elections, freedom freedom of the media and the the reform path, and we will go on as before. That's that's just my suspicion, Georgina. Guy, Thank you very much indeed. That's Guy Delaunay there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. The World Government Summit wrapped up in Dubai yesterday. The annual meeting seeks to enable governments to identify innovative solutions for future challenges and to inspire and empower the next generation of governments. Well, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, was there and joins me now from Dubai. Uh, Good morning to you, Andrew. I wonder if you could tell us who was at the meeting. We know that there were a lot of global leaders in attendance. Well, it's amazing. You're standing in the in the lobby, and uh, India's prime minister walks past. You're there, and Erdogan suddenly arrives. So, 26 global leaders, and many, many leaders from Africa, from the global south. So, that's the most fascinating thing: is the UAE really using its position to be this meeting point between the global south and the north. 
And I, th I think they, they, they have the ear of African leaders, of people in Central Asia. So it was incredible to see who actually pitched up. And how would you describe the general tone of the meeting? Well, the interesting thing is the World Government Summit as an organization, all of the, these young men and women who run these organizations, they're, they're of a generation. They all seem to know each other incredibly well. This is a country that has a minister for AI. And I don't think we should mock that or downplay it. He's an extraordinary young man, only in his 30s. And we, we came across him several times across the last couple of days. And it's through that prism that much of what happens on stage is discussed. It's about how you use technology, how you enable the next generation to have better education, better healthcare. So I found the mood, you know, all that's going on in the world, I found it an oddly positive gathering of people where people were aware of all the risks and dangers, but kept coming back to this pragmatism about how we deal with AI, how we deal with the need for better healthcare around the world. So a really positive gathering of people, I think. Uh, and so Gaza and Ukraine, not really in focus? Well, I was mentioning this earlier because it was extraordinary. I don't think I heard the word Ukraine in the entire three days. I don't think anybody raised it, not one person. Gaza, of, of course, came up a bit because of the the region that we're sitting in. But it was interesting. I met yesterday uh, a gentleman who's one of the world's leading banking figures, the global banking figures, with huge connections all over the world. And he said to me, he said he was dismayed at being at West this year because he felt that at the World Economic Forum, many of the conversations that would have happened even a decade ago or even 20 years ago involving people from the global south had been cancelled because there was such a focus on conflict and on the relationship with Russia. So for them, I think that what happens is they come here, they know those problems, they know they exist in the world, but they're seeking to find a different conversation. And I'll just add to that, it was interesting to see um, Paul Kagame, the president of, of uh, Rwanda on stage, and you know, he said, look, we're, we're fed up in Africa with everybody asking us to take sides in their disputes which are happening elsewhere in the world. Mm. We're not on the side of Russia, we're not on the side of China, we're on our side and we want conversations to come back to us to discuss what's needed for Africa. And is the UAE itself also pushing its neutrality? It's really amazing because, you know, yeah, I, I, it's 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 what it's, it's twelve o'clock here. I, I I went to breakfast this morning. On the table next to me were Kazakhs. On the next table were Russians. On the next table was a holding British family, and you feel that they have decided to say to people, "Look, you can come here, you can do your business, but park your your regional territorial problems back home. We don't want." To hear about that just get on with being in the uae in the uae yeah. and i think there's there's also a, a bit of that tone that comes into the people they invite on stage literally on stage i i've seen tucker carlson and tony blair where else would you have those two people whose views are quite opposing but it's all done through this prism of manners of listening to the a, a different voice and i think they pulled it off andrew we don't have a lot of time left but i'd just like to hear a brief roundup of the monocle panels well, it was great. So we got to present the, uh, a Futures Cities uh, panel, and I had um, a great, uh, a great four sessions to look after. So the, the head of the UNDP, the Development Programme for the UN, um, Action Steiner talked. I had a great session with um, Professor Carla Ratti and also with a woman called Kochkon Vorokom, who runs a thing called Poorer City in, in Bangkok, which is about making our cities more resilient. But what was great was just to be in that room with, you know, a, a packed room, 200, 250 people just on a, on a side meeting 
listening intently about what we need to do about our cities. And I think if you're here in a, a city that on, on Monday nearly flooded in, in one flash uh, downpour of rain, you see how the, the, these questions of, of resilience and how we make better cities and how we include people in an equitable are uh, top of the agenda here. Thank you very much, Andrew. That's Monocle's Andrew Tuck on the line from Dubai. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Carlotta Ribello and Chris Chermak, our researcher, Naomi Ekwe, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be back with the briefing that's live at midday in London. And The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.